0: All right, <clears throat> so we're doing a little something different today. Um, today is a celebration um, of God's holy word. Um, some of you know, when, when, some, when I want to say something very precisely the way I intend to say it, I, I read it directly. Um, that's, I don't normally do that when I preach, but I'm going to do that for the sake of time and, and uh, specificity today. So um, next week, we're diving headfirst into John three sixteen, as you just heard referenced, arguably the most iconic verse in modern Christianity. Um, We are part of our celebration of God's Word is to have the opportunity to give, to donate to the Gideon's ministry. Um, At the end of the service today, there'll be people at the back of the room accepting um, donations for Gideon's. Um, Gideon's is a ministry who has, they have have one task. Their one task is to put Bibles into people's hands, um, to put them in people's pathways so that they can't avoid them. Um, Every single penny, every dollar, every penny goes to purchasing Bibles and placing them. Um, and so, it, this is a great place to expend resources. So, if you've got some extra dollars today that you want to give to a ministry, this is a good one. Um, the investment opportunity in eternity is um, very, very high. Um, and we're also going to be hearing today from Dr. Harold Rawlings. Um, given our dedication to an intense study of Scripture, this, this celebration makes sense, especially the week before, doing, uh, jumping into John three sixteen, I love how that worked out exactly. Um, he was here a few years ago. Some of you may remember him. Dr. Rawlings As a doctor in biblical studies, served as a pastor for 44 years, has now been doing this since 2001. Um, the Rawlings Family Foundation builds youth camps, and that's um, some of the resources. Some of your resources from the church are going to go towards that um, in appreciation for Dr. Rawlings coming in today. Um, they have founded 17 camps in 15 countries um, and 150,000 professions of faith last year alone through their camps, 150,000. So again, a good place for us to be investing resources. Um, but more than introduce him, there's a, there's a real timeliness to this conversation for me. Uh, in particular, I wrote this just, I wrote this, just this week um, for this morning. Um, we just went as a staff to a conference for pastors and ministers. There were great ideas there. And we've been debriefing how to make the best use of the valuable uh, information there. Um, but not, and not everything has to be taught through direct scriptural study. All truth is God's truth. Conferences about data gathering, management, child psychology research, and all of these others can certainly be taught without teaching straight through a Bible passage. But there were conferences about moral truth relating to our neighbor's loving each other, and especially, and maybe most disturbingly, the nature and purpose of the church itself. Most of those speakers barely tipped their hats to the Bible. Um, Some made no reference whatsoever. As they taught through the purpose of the church, they made no reference to Scripture at all. Um, Most barely acknowledged it. One or two of all of the dozens of them actually quoted it. And this apparently is a trend headed even in evangelical churches to treat the Bible as at most something that should have a hat tipped to it. Um, one, one speaker referenced that we have to learn to sit in the darkness of people's lives with them. Okay, that's, there's value in that, sure. But the truth is that a person who is in the dark is only of value to the other people in the dark if they know where the light switch is. Reaching people... Means reaching them for something, reaching them with something. The truth is, oh, I said, so beggars who can tell other beggars where the food is are valuable to the beggars. People dying for a lack of water, lost in a desert. But if you know where the spring is, this is why I believe God chose this name for us. From John four uh, fourteen, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's supposed to be us. We aren't special in and of ourselves. But the God who caused the spring to well up in us, he is special. He creates living water from dead stone. And this is his living, breathing word. God gave us the miracle of his word. And you're about to hear about how much of a miracle it is that we have it. No, no question. This is the root source for everybody. Listen, this is the root source of the truth that will save your marriage. This is the light that can guide us in raising our children. How to understand and go about getting help for addictions and mental illnesses, our life issues, grief, fear, illness, purpose, all of it. This is the introduction to life. God's love letter to us, among many other things. This is where the bread is, beggars. This is where the water is, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Part of today is celebrating the good thing that God has done and giving us his word. And Dr. Rawlings is going to come and teach us about how we got it, where we can read it in our own language as easily as that. So we pray now God will um, gift him with the right words and the right things to share today. Dr. Rawlings, thank you. Thank
1: you. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you, Pastor. It's an honor to be here. I'm glad to be back in Texas, where I grew up. And uh, I called Texas this morning, (coughs) excuse my voice, about lost it. But uh, I graduated from uh, Tyler High School back in the dark ages. Anybody here that graduated from Tyler High School before it was changed into two? Anybody? It's amazing. (laughs) Okay. Well, this is a young crowd, I can tell. But I am uh, delighted to be here. This is my second time, as the pastor said, I was here eight years ago. I think that was about it. I was a little younger, not as much gray. But uh, anyway, I'm I'm happy to be here. Now, I have uh, two books. The first one I have written, and it's called trial by fire which is what you will hear today except this goes in a much greater detail than what I will have the time to do in the brief amount that I have here this morning. Ten dollars back on the table and uh, the ten dollars does not go to me personally. It goes into our foundation which the pastor talked about and we have 17 youth camps in 15 countries so I hope you'll take advantage of that and help us in our camping ministry. Now, this book is written by a friend of mine who is a retired attorney. He grew up in church, and he had a lot of churchianity, but not Christianity. He was—he uh, became a believer when he was in his twenties, and. Uh, he tried to witness to his dad, who also was a regular church goer, but not a Christian. And uh, he, his dad rebuffed him. But he knew his dad read the paper every day, from front to back, and even the advertisement. So he thought, if I can write an article that will be in the paper, my dad will read it, and I hope will eventually become a Christian. Well, he did that. And his dad did become a Christian. And this, is, uh, this has the articles in it that were in the paper that his dad wrote. Now this is an entirely free book. Okay? He, out of the goodness of his heart, he's made a lot of money in business. And so he just gives this and I help him and give these out. So pick one up after the service. I think we have enough for a lot of a lot of you, maybe not all of you, but some of you. Okay, now, the question that is usually asked of me is where did you get those Bibles? I was up in the Detroit area, Detroit, Michigan, and I had my Bibles like you see them here, and there was a, a couple that came by, and the lady said, she bent over and said, I know where you got those Bibles. She was whispering, made me whisper, I said, where? And she said, at flea markets and garage sales. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I wish, I wish. But I got them, we've been collecting for about 20 years and they've come from auction houses in this country, in England, Scotland, and from individuals, and uh, the biggest Bible here on the table, the first edition King James Bible, I bought through eBay, <laughs> so this, this Bible over here, that's actually uh, just a portion of a Bible, which uh, as you can see, it has no print like we're accustomed to. This is a braille Bible. And uh, maybe after, afterwards you can come by and feel the pages to imagine what it would be like to be blind. So it's quite unusual. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Very familiar passage. All scripture is given... By inspiration of God, or it's God breathed, and it's profitable, profitable for doctrine, for what it teaches, for reproof. All of us, all of us, at times need to be reproved. Amen. Amen. For correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now. There's a lot of instruction today in this 21st century in unrighteousness. Would you agree? But the scripture is for instruction in righteousness, in doing right, living right, being right. And then it says, after all of these things, that the man of God might be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished or equipped for every good work. Now in the older version, it says furnished. Furnished. We're familiar with furniture, right? Or furnishings. What would a house be that is not furnished? What is a Christian who is not Furnished. Think of that. Well, you can't be furnished as a Christian if you only come to church on Sunday and open the Bible or hear the Bible. One meal a week is not sufficient. Would you agree? Yes, now suppose you only ate one time a week. Pretty soon you'd look like a Holocaust Holocaust survivor. No, we need more food than just once a week. That's true of the Bible, this book. And that's why I'm here today, to give you a deeper appreciation for the purpose of this book we call the Holy Bible. Because if we can go all week without reading or opening the Bible We are doing ourselves a disservice. And even doing our Lord Jesus Christ a disservice. You may have seen or heard of the article that was in the GQ magazine just recently, most recent issue. And they were talking about the 20 most overrated books. The Bible was in the listing but you know what didn't surprise me at all. Not at all why because that's a secular rationalistic humanistic magazine what could you expect when the devil encountered Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden you know what he said to them? In fact, and I'm giving it a little different twist. He said to them, hey, the word of God is not what you think it is. The word of God can't be trusted. Hey, look, you're intelligent. You don't need some higher being or higher power to tell you what to do you're intelligent enough to do it yourself Well, that's what the secularist says today you know you don't need God that's uh, that's unnecessary and so the Bible is treated today by the secular world as a book that not only should not be read but it's dangerous Well, the Bible is a dangerous book, That's right. right? Thank you for your enthusiasm. <laughs> but I know you agree, this book is different. It's unlike any ordinary book. But sometimes we treat it as if it is not as important as some people say as the preacher says as Brother Chris says on Sunday. And so we go from week to week without opening the Bible. One of the, one of the strongest impressions on me when I was growing up as a boy was to see my mother or my father reading the Bible at home. That made such an impression on me. And it will make an impression on your children too. The Bible says that this is a profitable book. Profitable for teaching, for reproof and so forth as I've mentioned. But uh, it's not profitable as long as it remains a closed book. Now think of this for a moment. In England for a thousand years, the only Bible the people in England had was a Latin Bible. When the Roman Empire fell in 476, Latin would eventually become a dead language. It remained the official language of the Roman Catholic Church, but the ordinary person did not know what the priest was doing when he read the Latin Bible. They had to depend upon the priest for everything. The Bible was not for human consumption. So that was true for a thousand years. Well, there was an Englishman who lived in the uh, 14th century by the name of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was a Roman Catholic priest, but his study of the Bible convinced him that there were some things in the church of which he was a part that were not in accordance with the Bible. The more he studied the Bible, the more he began to speak out about these abuses. Well, that was not taken too kindly by church authorities. In fact, they eventually kicked him out of his professorship at Oxford. And he had to retire to a little parish church in Lutterworth in the Midlands of England. Not been there. And seen the church where he was the rector. it very, just looks very much like it must have looked during Wycliffe's time. But while he was at the church, he gathered around himself a group of young scholars, John Purvey, Nicholas Hereford, and some others, and together they began to work on a translation of the Bible into English. It was finished in 1382. 1382. Well, you would think the church authorities would be happy about this. The Bible now in English. They were, not un- they were not happy. They were in fact infuriated because they believed that only the priest or church authorities had the prerogative to read the Bible and then to explain the meaning to the people. The church, the Bible rather, was not for public consumption, especially for women and the uneducated. Well, in spite of those difficulties, Wycliffe and his translators finished the job And this is uh, a, I wish I could say this is an actual Wycliffe Bible. This is a a, a photographic reproduction of a Wycliffe Bible. That's a pretty good reproduction, but uh, there are two problems with this Bible. First of all, it had to be handwritten. And it would take almost a year for a scribe to reproduce a copy of the Bible. Not only that, it was um, handwritten about 75 years before the advent of printing. And so it would take a, a long, long time and be very costly for a person to purchase a Bible like this. In fact, it has been said that the common working man, in order to buy a full Bible like this, would have to pay 18 times his yearly salary for such a Bible. John Fox in his Book of Martyrs this is this book this by the way is a first edition Fox's Book of Martyrs you see the paperback copies in Christian bookstores are a little thin book like that. It's really a huge book one of the most important books ever published in England. But in his uh, his book of martyrs, it tells about farmers who would trade a cartload of hay for the privilege of reading the New Testament for a single day. Others would save for months in order to purchase a single page of the Bible. And oftentimes that page would be passed from house to house, family to family, for them to have the opportunity to read the Bible for the very first time in the English language. Well, The church authorities wanted to burn Wycliffe, but they couldn't because the law hadn't yet been passed that it was proper, legal to burn heretics. Well, Wycliffe died a natural death anyway just a few years after the Bible was finished. But listen to this. 44 years after he died, they sent a group up to the Lutterworth Church where Wycliffe was buried, believing that he was a heretic, and this group went into the church, pulled aside the flagstones, dug down, exhumed his remains. And because they were unable to defrock him in life or degrade him from the priesthood, they dressed his skeleton in a clerical robe, went through the process of degrading him, ripped the robe from his skeleton, burned his bones, and then scooped up the ashes, put them in what we would call a wheelbarrow push it down to the bottom of the hill where the river Swift flowed and emptied the contents into the river Swift. They did that because they felt that it would be more difficult for God to resurrect him at the last day. I would say they had a somewhat defective view of God's omnipotence. (laughs) Someone later wrote that uh, The river swift flows into the Avon, the Avon into the Severn, and the Severn into the sea. And the sea bathes the shores of every continent, the seven continents of the world. So wherever the waters of the sea carried the ashes of John Wycliffe, there was born the word of God. Such was his influence. Well, after the time of Wycliffe, there was the printing press that was invented 1454, 1455 this is a facsimile page of a of a Gutenberg Bible it was the the Latin Vulgate first major book ever printed on the printing press one of the great inventions of all time the printing press somewhat like the internet today but uh, if this were an actual Gutenberg page I wouldn't be handling it like this <laughs> a page like this from a good Bible actual page would cost about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars just a single page so you can imagine what a full Bible would cost but that was a, a great invention it made it possible for the Bible to be disseminated among the people so much quicker so much more I guess uh to, to the poorer people than otherwise, then this this book this uh, is the first printed Greek New Testament. It was it was produced by Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus was a great scholar and he uh, learned Greek. And prior to this, every every uh, Greek testament was handwritten now because this book was handwritten it's called a manuscript bible all bibles prior to the printing press were called manuscript bibles but the printing press changed all of that well about 100 years after the time of Wycliffe John or William Tyndale rather was born in about 1492, between 1490 and 1494, William Tyndale would become the leading, I guess we could say, uh, of the expert, really, in languages. He knew by the, time of his, uh, by the time of his martyrdom, he knew about eight languages, but he was proficient In uh, languages, and uh, it would be up to him to produce the first Bible from the original languages, Hebrew and Greek. John, or John Wycliffe, did not know those languages. He had to translate from the Latin Vulgate because Hebrew and Greek were not taught at Oxford at that time. Well, William Tyndale wanted to, after his studies at Oxford, wanted to produce a Bible in English from the original languages And he set about to do that. And of course, that took a lot of study. It took a lot of time. But when it came time for him to start translating, he went to the Bishop of London to ask permission to translate in England because they had made a law to the effect that if you translate a Bible in England, you have to get ecclesiastical permission to do that. Well, the Bishop of London did not give him that permission. So he had to go across the channel into Germany and all the while he's working on his translation. It was finished in 1526. And this is what it looked like. Just a small, unimpressive New Testament but this is one of the most valuable Bibles that we have in our collection. And uh, it had to be this in this format because it was still against the law to produce a Bible in England, so they had to smuggle them into England. But all of the uh, church authorities there thought this was a terrible thing to have the Bible in English, so they started confiscating these Bibles. There were 3,000 of them printed in that first printing. There are only three of those first editions still left in the world today, three. One is in St. Paul's Cathedral, another is in um, British Museum, British Library now, and the other one is in the Stuttgart archival area in Stuttgart, Germany. I've seen that, held it in my hand, the very first edition. Now, this is not a first edition, but it, uh, it's an early Bible, about 1550. Well, Tyndale was a hunted man. He was arrested, put in, put in jail. Now, the jails at that time were not like the jails today. They were dungeons. They were filthy. No heat in the wintertime. No air conditioning in the summertime. You can well imagine what a a jail would be like. A letter was discovered that Tyndale wrote to the governor of the prison, prison about 100 years ago. And in that letter, Tyndale asked that he might have a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from a cold and have a perpetual cough. A warmer coat also, for what I have is very thin cloth with which to patch my leggings, and my woolen shirt, for my clothes are all worn out. And I asked that I might be allowed to have a lamp in the evening, for it is wearisome sitting alone in the dark. Then he asked that you might have his Hebrew grammar and so forth. Now, we don't know whether those requests were granted, but we do know that was brought to trial. He was convicted of being a heretic and sentenced to be burned at the stake. The day, October the 6th, when they took him to be burned, 1536, they strapped his body to a pole by chains. And uh, just before they burned him, They tightened a rope that was twisted around his neck and strangled him before he was burned. But his last word was this. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He met Henry VIII. But Henry VIII detested Tyndale. He could have saved him from burning. But Henry VIII's second wife, Anne Boleyn, raised by evangelicals in France she loved the scriptures read the Bible frequently and she wanted the Bible to be distributed to the people but the Catholic authorities hated her believing that she was responsible for the English reformation more so than anyone else and Boleyn. they called her the Martin Luther of England And they began to pass all kinds of malicious rumors about her sexual indiscretions. Henry believed them. They were not true. But she was put in the tower, and eventually she was beheaded. But uh, Tyndale, though he suffered martyrdom, there were others that were taking up his mission. And that was Miles Coverdale who produced this Bible using Tyndale's New Testament. And he, but he was not the scholar that, that Tyndale was. And uh, he did not know Hebrew and Greek that well. And he had to use Luther's Old Testament, German Old Testament, to translate into English. But that's a very important Bible. It's the first complete printed English Bible. This Bible came two years later. It's called the Matthew's Bible produced by John Rogers, another assistant of Tyndale's. He used all of Tyndale's New Testament, all that Tyndale finished of the Old Testament, which he finished about half of the Old Testament. And then uh, John Rogers was the first of some 300 people during the reign of Queen Mary, Bloody Mary she's known, when she came to the throne. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. But uh, two years later, this Bible appeared. It's called the Great Bible. wonder why they call it Great. Well, it was the first, the biggest Bible ever produced in England at that time. So they call it the Great Bible. Guess who authorized this? Henry the Eighth. You remember Tindale's prayer? Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Well, he did. You see, our prayers are Immediately answered sometimes. We just have to be patient. And uh, Henry VIII's eyes were open. And by the way, they mandated that one of these Bibles be in every parish church in England. The church had to purchase the Bible. Before that, it was against the law to have one of these Bibles in an English church. But now it's against the law not to have a Bible in the church because some of the Bibles were being stolen. I don't know if they had Baptists in those days, but just kidding. (laughs) They had to chain the Bible to the podium to keep it from being stolen. So they called it the chain Bible as well as the great Bible. Then uh, when Henry VIII died, his son, Edward VI, became the king. What time am I supposed to finish here? About 10 minutes. Huh? Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> this Bible, when, when uh, Henry VIII died, his son, Edward VI, became the king. He was only nine years old when he became the king. He was the son of Henry VIII and his his third wife, Jane Seymour. It's hard to keep up with all of Henry's wives. Do we have a nine year old boy here in the service this morning? Any nine year olds back here? Come up here, son. Another one? Is that the only nine year old boy we have? Oh, you've got, you're got nine years old. So stand right here. We got two. How about a, we have three? Huh? <laughs> okay. All right. Well Edward the was nine. I turn around and face the. Okay. Now what is your name? Gabriel. Gabriel? Like the angel? What's your name, Huh? Tucker? You see those older people back there in the back, they can't hear too well. <laughs> so yell it out. You yell it. Tell them what your name is. Gabriel. Now it's not loud enough. You can do better than that. Do it like the preacher, okay. loud. try it again. Gabriel. That's better. <laughs> what is your name? You may like a preacher, you know that? What is your name? Tucker. Who? Tucker. Well, yell it so they can hear you way back. See that man standing back there? Tucker. <laughs> and what's your name, son? Cullen. That's pretty good. Maybe a little louder. Okay. Colin. Oh good. Good. And what's your name?
0: Sawyer.
1: Now aim towards those people back there yelling out.
0: Sawyer.
1: Now let me ask you boys. Okay. Would you like to be the king of England? Any other would you like to be the king? I don't know. Would you? Not really. would you? Not really. Would you like to be the king of England? No you okay All right. now listen now listen see you, did, you didn't really think about this because you would have the pick of the best looking girls in the whole kingdom you see now what do you think you'd like to be the king no believe me that will change okay thanks boys All right. Edward VI was, as I say, very young, nine years old, but all of his advisors were Protestant. He was Protestant. So during the brief reign of Edward VI, six years, the Bible was freely distributed. But when he died at an early age, Mary the daughter of Henry VIII and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, devout devout Catholic, she wanted to take England back under the Pope. Henry had broken with the Pope in 1534, made himself the head of the English church, and every monarch since that time, including Elizabeth II nowadays, is the head of the English church, and they they called the, the monarch, The defender of the faith, the faith. Charles, Prince of Wales, whom I don't have a whole lot of respect for, has said that he is not, when he becomes the king, if he becomes the king, is not going to be the defender of the faith. He said, I'll be the defender of of faith, but not of the faith. Well, I'm delighted to tell you as a church, you are defenders of the faith, not just faith, okay? All right, that's just a sideline. I didn't intend to say it, but I said it anyway. (laughs) This this Geneva Bible came out of uh, the English uh, exiles who left during Mary's reign of terror. By the way, 300 people were burned at the stake during her reign including 60 women, but a lot of the Englishmen fled to Geneva in Switzerland, as we know it today, and they translated this Bible called the Geneva Bible, and uh, it's, it's uh, quite an important Bible. It's the first study Bible. There are all kinds of study Bibles these days. It's the first Bible in Roman type, easier to read than the Gothic print, you see, and that. Gutenberg device then it is the first English Bible that had numbered verses numbered verses every English Bible now has numbered verses but these earlier Bibles when you take a closer look you'll see that they do not have numbered verses well this was uh, this became the favorite Bible in England for almost a hundred years it was uh, the favorite of the generation after the King James appeared. And by the way, you can still buy this Bible. It's printed today. But uh, here's a question. I'm glad you asked it. But <laughs> why did the pilgrims who settled in 1620 up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, why did they bring the Geneva Bible and not the King James Bible, which was printed in 1611, and this was 1620. Why did they do that? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it, but I don't have the time to answer. You'll have to buy my book. (laughs) (laughs) When Elizabeth, who reigned for, she's the daughter of Henry VIII and uh, his second wife Anne Boleyn, when she died in 1603, her distant cousin, James VI of Scotland, became King James I of England and it was during his reign, during the early part of his reign actually, that this Bible was produced and there's a a long story about that. I don't have time to tell it but uh, this became the most important Bible in England for over 300 years. I dare say that there are some here today who still use the King James. Now, I'm not a King James only person but I appreciate what the King James Bible has done for the people of of England and of English speaking countries. In England, they don't call this Bible the King James Bible. They call it the authorized version. But we know it as the King James Bible, named after the king who reigned at that time. Well, a very important Bible. All of these are important. But let me just uh, give you this in closing. You know, in Psalm 119, verse uh, 161, it says, the psalmist says, my heart stands in awe of your word. My heart stands in awe of your word. You know, in other countries, sometimes when people from the U.S. or from Great Britain and other places, when they give a Bible to people who haven't had a Bible ever, they clutch it. They treasure it. But sometimes because we have so ready access to the Bible, we've lost that sense of awe. But remember that verse... My heart stands in awe of the Word of God. Don't be disturbed by GQ, gentlemen's quarterly. They're just doing what their sinful nature tells them to do. Exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. But listen to this. The flower fades, the grass withers, but the Word of our God Shall stand forever. The word of our God shall stand forever. You can put that down in your little black book. There have been those who have predicted that at Mice of the Bible, when I was in Geneva a few years ago, just down from my hotel was the house where Voltaire lived. The French agnostic. Before he died, he predicted that less than a hundred years after he died. The Bible, a Bible can only be found in the rare book sections of libraries. But guess what? After he died the Geneva Bible Society, bought his house, used his own printing press to print Bibles and distribute them throughout the world. Yes, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Thank you. God bless you.